Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning all about the 2020 movie written by and starring Tom Hanks, Greyhound. Now, Greyhound is based on a novel called The Good Shepherd, written by C.S. Forster. And to help us separate the facts from the fiction, we'll chat with the naval consultant on the film, Gordon Lackow. Gordon's company, which you can find through the link in the show notes for this episode, provides historical consulting services for filmmakers so they can tell better stories. And before we connect with Gordon, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Tom Hanks' character, Commander Ernie Krause, was based on someone named Captain Walker in the Royal Navy. Number two, the close call that we saw with Greyhound narrowly missing two torpedoes at the same time really happened. Number three, there are seven German subs in a wolf pack. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode— and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Gordon Lacko about the historical accuracy of Greyhound. The movie starts by setting up something called the Black Pit. According to the movie, that's the nickname given to an area in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean that's beyond the range of air cover, making the convoys most vulnerable. And the specific convoy that the movie focuses on is Convoy HX-25, which is destined for Liverpool, England in February of 1942, with, according to the movie, 37 troop and supply ships escorted by four light warships named Eagle, Harry, Dickey, and Greyhound. And the man in command of those escort ships is Tom Hanks' character, Captain Ernie Krauss, who was given command of Greyhound just a couple months earlier, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So how does the movie do setting up the time, place, and main character in the film? I think pretty well. As you know, the uh, film was based on C.S. Forrester's The Good Shepherd. I wish we could have used that name. The dramatic tension in what was going on in World War II then was the war had been raging for nearly three years. And the uh, Canadians, the British, the Poles, and other surviving allies had been fighting the Germans for several seasons, uh, and they were getting good at it. And the people alive then didn't know, but the worst of the Battle of the Atlantic was over. The uh, entrance of the U.S. forces to the war as a fully participating ally was a big thing. And strangely enough, it was called by the Germans the second happy time. The reason was the U.S. forces did not understand yet the value of moving merchant vessels in convoys. So with the U.S. Uh, eastern seaboard opened up as a hunting ground, virtually undefended because they weren't sailing in convoy, there was a slaughter. When we were uh, working to convert the film, uh, the book rather, to a, a screenplay, we had to solve a problem that another director I worked for described where he said, when you pick up a book, all the words fall out. And literally what he meant was you lose all the descriptive in the background. So what we had to do was try to help the audience understand that Hanks's character, Commander Krause, he wasn't a captain, he was a commander, which figures largely in the story later. Commander Krause was green as grass. He had been basically served a uh, competent but undistinguished career for his whole 25 years in the service. 
when war comes for the U.S. in 42 or 41, end of 41, he's too old to go to sea, really, but there's a war emergency on. So he's dragged back from the brink of retirement and thrown into a ship. I had to come up with a date for the movie to, to take place in. All Forrester described was winter of 1942. So I imagined that uh, the U.S. fully declares war after Pearl Harbor. That's before Christmas. It would take about two and a half or three months to work up, as we call it. The Americans would call that shakedown, a warship under new commission. That would bring us to February. And because I needed to write dates on charts for the dead reckoning plots where you see glimpses of the charts in the film, I chose my wife's birthday, February 12th. So I guess I'm roundabout answering your question. That was the setup beforehand. There's also uh, hints in, into what was described in greater detail in the book in the opening scenes of the film. When Hanks' character, Commander Krauss, comes onto his bridge and asks what's happening, basically, he's told by his junior watch officer that the Polish and the British destroyer have broken away and gone hunting on their own. And in the book, it's more apparent that they're flatly ignoring his instructions. And the behind-the-scenes story there is the uh, British captain is a, is a lieutenant commander, as they'd say in the States. So is the Pole. The Canadian captain is also a lieutenant commander in the, in the Corvette, HMCS Dodge. They know that Hanks doesn't know what he's doing. And because of the accident of his promotion to commander, which exceeds, exceeds their rank, he's in charge. But I'll say again, he doesn't know what he's doing. And the tension in the book, which we tried to translate into the film, is that he's got to lead these three other warship captains who are very good at their jobs while he learns himself how to do it. And he's make, he makes mistakes, but by the end of the story, he's uh, starting to hit the tune and learn his lessons. The story is actually based on a real captain. There was uh, Captain Walker in the Royal Navy. I'm sure Forrester based his car- his Krauss character on him. He uh, served as a junior officer in the First World War, was out of work, basically, in the, during the Depression in the 1930s, was dragged back and thrown into a small warship, although he was way too old and he should have been retired. But he became history's greatest submarine hunter. He developed techniques under stress of war that are still used today. And unfortunately, that man died during the war. He didn't survive. He died of, uh, well, basically, he worked himself to death. He had a stroke and then died later in hospital. And if you Google Captain Johnny Walker, you'll see photos of him, including one of him on his bridge, leaning forward over it like he's driving a chariot, screaming into a microphone. He put everything he had into hunting submarines, and he was damn good at it. That had to have been so tough to convey because the movie doesn't really show any of the other commanders. So everything is through communication and their actions and things like that, not necessarily being able to see the other ship's commanders and how they're reacting to these orders that they're getting. Well, that's correct. Uh, there's not much of it left in the, in the script. In the uh, earlier versions, the first two or three submarine hunts are failures. And the submarine outsmarts Hanks the first times. And there are other uh, moments in the film, which I, I think we may talk about later, that in the book demonstrated his, his inexperience. But he learns his lessons, and that's the point of the story. And the movie mentions this zone between air cover being called the Black Pit. Was that real? Yes. Uh, it wasn't just a nickname that we developed. It was uh, a term commonly used during the war. Until the uh, development of uh, what they called ultra-long-range aircraft, that could cross the Atlantic and linger if they saw something to deal with. There was a, an area in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean that aircraft, Allied aircraft couldn't reach. 
And we didn't have uh, light aircraft carriers yet that could accompany the convoys. So from about 800 miles out from Newfoundland, and until they were about 800 miles out from Ireland, there was no air cover. And the Germans knew this. And convoys were routed very carefully, trying to avoid concentrations of U-boats. But the submarines would spread themselves out in patrol lines looking for the convoys. So once they found them, they could operate with more or less impunity. It's important to remember that even a very efficient submarine like the German Type 7C that we depict in the film was basically a warship that could dive. Whereas today, submarines are warships that operate underwater. The submarine of World War II of anybody's Navy was a a surface warship that was capable of diving when it had to. So while the surface range of a Type 7C U-boat might be 3,500 or 4,000 miles, dove, dived as they would call it, it was only about 100 miles before it had to surface again to recharge batteries and change air. So catching submarines on the surface was the best way to sink them. And that's why it was very dangerous for submarines to operate on the surface where there was air cover, hence the uh, the, the danger in the so-called Black Pit. Aircraft were crossing the Atlantic that early in the war, but they didn't have range to linger to hunt something if there was a job to be done. They couldn't accompany a convoy circling it. Okay, yeah, that, that puts a lot more context into why the Black Pit area was such a big deal. Yeah, that's a, a good thing to keep in mind because, well, a Type 7C U-boat or submarine was capable on the surface of doing 17 knots, which was actually faster than an anti-submarine corvette. Dived, they could do nine knots as a maximum speed, but driving their electric motors that hard, they could only do it for less than an hour before the batteries were depleted. And they'd be thrashing their propellers so hard, they'd be making enough noise, they'd be committing suicide. So when operating in the vicinity of uh, enemy warships, it was common for submarines of any nationality in those days to be moving underwater at speeds of less than five knots, probably one and a half, two or three knots, creeping along very quietly, because to go fast was suicide. I had to choose a speed for our convoy, and in order to help the animations work, I decided this was going to be a fast convoy, and a fast convoy in 1942 steamed at eight knots. Well, that's not very fast by our standards, but it was fast for a collection of merchant ships then that had to plod along at the speed of the slowest ship that was qualified to join them. So if the convoy is doing eight knots and an aircraft comes along and forces a submarine to dive to protect itself, well, that submarine now has to go slower than the convoy and the convoy can outrun it. So if the escorts can force a submarine to dive, they've done 80% of their job. Sinking the submarine is good, of course, because then it's not coming back. But forcing it to dive dramatically limits its capabilities. Hence, again, the danger of uh, the area in the middle of the North Atlantic where at midpoint in the war in 1942, there was no air cover. Speaking of the U-boats, the first sign that we see in the movie for them is there's the convoy flagship sends a signal to Greyhound that the Hufda or high-frequency direction finding reports a German's transmission, at, most likely from a U-boat. And then we see Greyhound run it down. There's this intense hunt. Depth charges are dropped. And then after a moment of searching for indications of a hit, they do see some oil and debris indicates that the U-boat has been destroyed. And then almost immediately, it seems like there's no time at all passing. There's another distress signal shot into the air. We see uh, the Greek merchant ship, the Despotico, on fire. The movie suggests that all of this is happening what's called the forenoon watch, so from 0800 to 1200 hours. 
but we don't get a lot of other indicators as far as the timeline other than that. So can you give us a little more historical context around this first contact with U-boats happening? Yes, uh, we were very careful in action sequences uh, to try to avoid compressing time as far as possible. So from the uh, the Huftuff report coming in, we show the reaction to that in real time. And the time it takes the destroyer to run down the bearing at 36 knots, we compress that a little bit, but only only by minutes. That sequence is pretty much in real time, except we did compress the length of time that they, they ran down the bearing. Do you mind if I talk about Huftuff a bit? Yeah, the movie did kind of make a point to explain what that was, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and did you notice we had the signaler, the young sailor, he didn't know what Huftuff was. He was sounding out the words. He thought he must have made a mistake in his decoding. Huftuff was a British invention, one of those very British things that the uh, the Polish, Canadian, and Royal Navy, British Royal Navy vessels had, but the Americans didn't yet. That was one of those built-in-a-garage brilliant inventions that was a war-winning weapon. In England in the late 1930s, there was a meteorologist who noticed when he was driving home in his car, if there was a thunderstorm happening somewhere, his AM radio crackled when there were lightning bolts, even if he couldn't see them, he'd hear the crackling. So it occurred to him that if he could develop a device that would snap a radio bearing on the transmission of the lightning burst and grab that bearing in that brief instant that it went, he could track thunderstorms he couldn't even see. And it worked. He did it. World War II came along in 1939. It occurred to him, I think maybe the Navy could use this. So he gave it to them. He gave it to them. And eight worse means high frequency direction finding. So if every British and Canadian and some Polish warships had a Huftuff set on board, and you can recognize the antennas on their masts. They look like a TV antenna. Say there's, a, at any given moment, 30 warships at sea spread all over the North Atlantic Ocean. There's a Huftuff station in Newfoundland, Greenland, Iceland, the Azores, Ireland, and various parts of England. And a U-boat makes a sighting signal saying, I see a convoy. Come on, gather in, boys. Let's get it. And they could do that with just a few letters in code. Instantly, even if it was just one beep of a key on his uh, Morse set, maybe 20 Huftuff stations would pick that beep up. And within half an hour, the Admiralty in London and England would be transmitting the probable source of that beep. And if there were several of those, they'd recognize a sighting report and they'd know a wolf pack was gathering. So they might be able to tell the convoy, alter course 40 degrees north. And to try to avoid it, just like a, a, a guy carrying a football would avoid a tackler coming towards him. The U.S. forces didn't have that yet then. And in the book, the fact the other escorts did was one of the indications of the position that Krauss is in, Hanks's character. He's got to lead these people that are more experienced than him, have better weapons than him, have better sensing instruments than him, and have been fighting the Germans for two and a half years and are good at it. He's got to lead them when he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's the drama in the book, aside from the fact that he's just too old to be out there. Did the Germans have any sort of indication that the Allies had that technology? None. And I'm delighted as a historian to look back and say they never quite figured out that we were snapping bearings on them so quickly. Huftuff was a was a secret, a war-winning secret, and they, they never quite understood. And they, they continued right to the end of the war to try to operate their ships at sea from uh, Kernival, uh, Admiral Donitz's base in France, where he could, like a chess player, he could move his pieces around the North Atlantic battlefield. 
personal initiative did matter for a lot for the Germans, as it did for us too. But they never stopped trying to play the game from home. And that necessitated radio signaling. And that radio signaling let us hunt them down. And by the last third of the war, we were actually chasing them, uh, running convoys towards known concentrations of U-boats, because men like Captain Walker realized that's the way to get them, is to draw them with the convoy. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One thing that the movie implies almost right after they lose their air cover, they start to encounter the U-boat. So, you know, obviously that you mentioned that the Germans knew this range there, but how much time would have passed between losing air support and getting attacked by by U-boats? Well, conceivably, they could have been attacked as soon as they left Halifax, and that did happen right through the war. The Germans, however, had their intelligence services just, just like we did, and they had a pretty good idea of the range of the uh, the Catalina or the, the short Sunderland and the other aircraft used the long-range patrolling. We said in uh, the screen that three days, two, I think two, goodness, I forget, two or three days passed since they, since they lost their air escort. So we tried to create a situation of two or three days of waiting for something to happen. And it, had, it didn't happen yet until that huffed-up signal came in. It's important to note that despite the carnage and the savagery with which the Battle of the Atlantic was fought, the truth is that most convoys got through unmolested didn't see anything. And uh, that was a, a crushing thing to the Germans. And I have a, a family story that relates to that of my dad's personal experience. So there's two parts to the story, one the Canadian point of view and one the German point of view. In 1942, the Germans leading U-boat ace was captured alive through a happy set of circumstances for him, although he lost most of his men. His submarine was blown to the surface, sunk by gunfire and rammed, and he was plucked out of the water, apparently almost dry. Otto Kretschmer was his name. And he survived to the 1980s and wrote an autobiography. He described his capture. He described having his binoculars taken from him by the captain that captured him. Uh, apparently, that man gave them back to him later after the war. 
being brought to Halifax, where he was absolutely horrified to see convoys coming and going, completely unmolested by the German Navy, and Halifax itself, a busy port completely beyond their reach, he was put on a train and sent to what he described as the interior of North America through one large industrialized city after another till he finally got to Toronto, where he thought he was only going to find, I think he called it log cabins and bears in the interior of North America. But here was yet another large industrial city completely out of their reach. He wrote in his autobiography, he said that at that moment he realized in 1942, we can't win this war. They had no idea of the resources in North America. And so roll the camera to the other side. My father in 1942 was 14 years old. His brother, Henry, who I, I carry his middle name, was on leave before going out, going away to the war overseas. And he came home to Toronto's Union Station. He arranged to meet my dad at the clock tower that's still there on the sidewalk. So there's my 14-year-old dad, 1942, standing on the sidewalk. Through the crowd came striding a senior German naval officer. Dad described him wearing his leather sea coat over his shoulders, like a cape with his arms not in the sleeves, his officer's cap on slightly askew, striding through the crowd, parting them, as Dad put it, like the Red Sea, being followed by two Canadian infantrymen carrying Sten guns. His guards, but clearly there was no question who was in charge. Dad said the guy was just oozing arrogance and self-confidence. He stopped about 20 feet in front of my father, put his hands on his hips, Dad said, spreading his coat like Batman, looked at the Royal York Hotel across Front Street, looked back at the train station he'd just come out of, looked at his feet, shook his head, and walked east. That had to be Otto Kretschmer at that moment. Isn't that something? That's amazing. Wow. Kretschmer survived the war in prison camp and uh, became a, a died an admiral in the uh, peacetime German Navy, serving NATO at the end of his career. Speaking of the different perspectives, in the movie, we don't really see anything from the perspective of the U-boats, and we start to get an idea of how many are out there as the Allies are discovering them. I, I think at one point there was uh, someone who mentioned there are six German subs. How many subs would actually stalk a convoy in a wolf pack, typically? It's important to remember that a wolf pack is not a thing like a regiment or a division ashore or a squadron. A wolf pack are the submarines who happen to be near enough to get into the game. The Germans learned early in the war to spread themselves out in lines in the Atlantic, hoping a convoy would come in sight of one of them. If that happened, they learned it was better for that submarine not to attack immediately, but to follow it while sending off sighting reports, and that's where Huffduff comes in. So an attack might be one U-boat. Well, that would only be if there were others who couldn't catch up. So that one U-boat who made the first sighting, and that's the one we see at the beginning of the film, or hear about, or we get, would send sighting reports out and hope to gather his mates. And they'd be up to 200 miles away. And they'd come at their best speed to join the party. But the convoy's advancing at eight knots, so it's not easy to catch up. So the, the convoy might elude most of them. We have seven submarines in the film at the peak. There were stories during the war of as many as 14. And sometimes they were able to elude them all. So a wolf pack was not a thing. It was a colloquial term for a gathering. And it could be uh, any number that could get together. Okay. And from what you were saying earlier, it sounds like they would almost have to travel on surface in order to be able to catch up, which would only make it even more dangerous and difficult for this you know, line, line of subs to converge on a convoy. 
the U-boats at that point in the war did not have radar, so they relied completely on visual sighting. And of course, the conning tower is not very high. I think Winston Churchill commented once that the area of sea that a submarine can see from his conning tower is like the head of a pin stuck in a large map of the North Atlantic. They can't see much. And they were chronically plagued with failures in their intelligence service because they didn't get along well with the Air Force on their side. And the Germans, luckily for us, never did get as good at tracking convoys and intercepting radio and so forth as we got, which is a good thing for us. So the uh, submarines were basically blundering around looking for convoys, and often the convoys got through. You've probably seen Das Boot, a superb film from the Germans' point of view about the Battle of the Atlantic. At one point, they meet Thompson, and there's that fantastic scene when they're on the surface in heavy seas, shouting to each other, two old friends who are still alive. And then afterwards, the captain is furious because he realizes they're supposed to be spread out 50 miles apart looking for convoys, and here they are bumping into each other. And what that highlights is the difficulty of navigation then. And in earlier versions of the script, we went into that in the film in more depth. Navigation was purely by dead reckoning, which is keeping track of your speed and course, and by celestial navigation, which was by sun, moon, and star observations, quite prone to error. And if the weather's bad, you might not see the sun for a week or more or the whole time you're out there. So position is only guessing. So the convoy doesn't know where it really is. They know where they think they are. And the same thing was happening to the U-boats. They would try to spread out on a, li- on a line. They were ordered, staying apart, hoping the convoy wouldn't slip between them. But they they were suffering from the same things in the weather, too. A, a submarine's routine, daily routine, figures in the story because when they were leaving their ports in France uh, or Norway, they had to travel on the surface at night to cover ground, but dive during the day. So when they're dived during the day doing four, five, six, seven knots, they're not not going to cover much ground, whereas at night they could do 15, 16, 17 knots and really get out to the to the hunting areas. The uh, Allies got very, very good at hunting them even at night, and much effort was put into developing radars that could pick up small objects and surprise them while they were traveling on the surface. Again, the name of the game for the Allies was keep them dived because they couldn't see anything when they were down. They could hear, but not so well as they could see and uh, they were slow. We didn't shoot anything from the submarine's point of view because a big part of our story in the film, as it is in the book, is how difficult it is for Hanks' character to hold in his head what's happening around him underwater. He's got to have what they call situational awareness in the Navy still, and he's got to make guesses all the time about what he thinks is probably happening from the clues and indications that he gets. So we didn't want the audience to have the benefit of seeing where the submarines were going and what their strategy was. We only see that based on what Tanks knows. I did like that perspective of that too, because it does give you that it idea of there's this vast ocean around you and the enemy could be anywhere. That's right. If we, you and I were sitting having uh, coffee in the wardroom of a destroyer or a merchant ship right now, the torpedo could come now. Or it might not come for four days, or it might never come. And that was part of the terror of that battle. You mentioned the weather, and I wanted to ask you about that, because in the movie, we see the convoy having to deal with really bad weather. There are scenes where Krauss is asking for gloves from his cabin, the wipers on the windows freeze up, and there's some external shots of Greyhound where we see ice building up on the ship. And of course, there's massive waves that just crashing against the ship and spraying 
must be freezing water everywhere. Did weather cause a problem for convoys and their escort ships like that? Absolutely. With bad weather came bad visibility. And imagine 37 merchant ships ranging from five to 10,000 tons plodding along in lines together. In peacetime, for a merchant ship to see another ship means you're a little closer than you like. But here they are going sailing along a few hundred yards apart. So it was uh, dangerous and difficult for them in bad weather. It was also dangerous and difficult for them escorts to keep track of them. Uh, basically, they were like sheepdogs darting around to the herd, as they referred to it, trying to keep them in, in formation. A really bad storm could cause ships to fall out of line, and either by mechanical breakdown or sometimes just by terror of a collision. And while he was getting out of his position, that's very dangerous. And then, of course, he's alone. And a ship alone was easy meat for a submarine. The weather was actually worse for the submarines. They had to come up to look for their prey, and they had to come up to recharge their batteries and uh, change their air. So if things are bad for a destroyer, like we see in our film, a Fletcher-class destroyer's bridge structure is about 35 or 40 feet above the waterline. Well, imagine eight feet above the waterline, like in a submarine, you're underwater every second or third wave. And that dramatically inhibited their ability to, uh, to cope. Submarines have, uh, in those days, often had deck guns. Later in the war, most Atlantic operational submarines had their deck guns removed. They just couldn't use them. In the North Atlantic, it was too rough usually, and they decided to try to do without the weight and the, uh, and the resistance in the water. So the weather affected them all. That's fascinating to see it from that perspective, because my initial thought would be it would not affect the submarines as much as the surface ships, because they're underwater. So I just would assume that the weather wouldn't affect them as much. But your explanation there makes perfect sense that it would actually affect them more. I'll harken back to Das Boot again. Uh, the, for both the film and the book are superb descriptions of the, the Battle of the Atlantic from the Germans' point of view. They would dive sometimes just for relief from the uh, tossing and the motion. And the captain of the U-boat in that the journalist accompanied that became the film Das Boot described that 190 feet down, they could still feel some gentle movement. On the surface, there were 40, 50-foot waves, and it was pretty difficult to operate in those. When I was watching uh, Greyhound and just seeing those massive waves, I couldn't help but think of like the reality TV shows that we see these days on the ocean, and they're just having to deal with the intense cold and this horrible weather. They don't have to deal with the fact that there might be a torpedo coming on top of that as well. When we were in pre-production for the film, we had long discussions about how to depict the weather. As I put it in one of the meetings I was attending, the weather is one of the characters in the film, just as much as the uh, the enemy is or, or any of the merchant ships or warships. We wondered how to accurately show what bow waves and stern wakes and what warships look like when they're moving fast. And we realized pretty quickly it's pretty tough to find a large ship that can do 30 knots. They just don't exist outside the military. So one thing I was able to do to help the production as a retired Royal Kennedy Navy officer, I phoned uh, our national defense headquarters, described what we were doing. And coincidentally, one of our frigates, HMCS Montreal, was finishing her midlife refit and was going out in the North Atlantic for workups. Shakedown, as the Americans would say. So I got permission to put a film crew on board. So in, in the movie, when you see bow waves and stern waves and uh, ships moving fast and turning and so forth, even the tracer bullets firing at night, 
those were all shot aboard HMCS Montreal. I had to laugh uh, to my wife afterwards. When I was a lieutenant serving in the Navy, I couldn't phone National Defense Headquarters up and say, hey, guys, I need a ship. Can I have one? But as a consultant on a Tom Hanks movie telling our story, basically, the Battle of the Atlantic, they said, sure, we'll, we can help. The Navy can't invoice for services. They, they can cooperate, and they often do willingly, but they can't charge for the services because it's the military. So what the production did, which I think is something that everybody's intensely proud of, is uh, make a fairly substantial, quite substantial donation to the Children's Hospital in Montreal, Canada, uh, in the name of HMCS Montreal to thank them. And that, I think, is an indication of Tom Hanks's character and the people that work for him. They didn't have to do that, but they did. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask about um, that we see throughout the movie is one of the German U-boat commanders, re- simply refers to himself as, as Grey Wolf, keeps taunting Krauss throughout the, the whole movie. There's this radio communication that goes on. And then, of course, you know, Krauss goes to the other escorts. Oh, we you know change channels and then comes back later on and starts taunting him again. Did that sort of communication between the allies and and germans actually happened that taunting actually actually happened yes and no it happened ashore or in the air rather but it did not happen at sea and it just could not happen the radio set that uh, hanks is speaking to his fellow naval officers on was called tbs which meant talk between ships uh modern boaters call it vhf very high frequency radio radio telephone It was an invention of the Royal Air Force that was put into service just before the Battle of Britain in 1940 that allowed fighter pilots and their ground controllers to talk to each other with voice rather than Morse code. All other ships at sea, like all the merchant ships and uh, certainly all German ships, merchant or naval, could only communicate by radio using Morse. And rather than plain language letters, they might use codes, but it was beeps and dashes only. The Allies had a war-winning weapon in to talk between ships. It meant that someone like Krauss in his position would be like the quarterback on a football team shouting, you hook around to the left or whatever in real time and just talk. Captains at the time described it as utterly intoxicating just to be able to talk to each other that well to coordinate combat. It was a new thing. The Germans didn't have it. It was possible for the Germans to find a duplex frequency being used by patient tuning of their receiver, but they would have to understand English if they had someone on board who could. They'd have to understand the jargon that was used specifically to throw off people who didn't speak English well. And of course, they changed the frequencies constantly. And just because you had the receiving frequency of a particular channel, that didn't mean you had the transmitting frequency. It was called duplex. It still is. So for every channel, there's two frequencies, and you would need them both. So for a U-boat to do what we showed in the film, the radio operator would have to build a radio in the submarine with a microphone, which, he, of course, he, he wouldn't have. He'd have to build it out of something on board. And then he'd have to understand the concept of duplex radio transmission and find those frequencies. So, well, he might eavesdrop by finding the frequency. To be able to taunt like that is problematic. Okay, yeah, probably not going to happen. <laughs> it did happen in the air, though. It did happen in the air. Later in the war, the, uh, the the Germans got better at it, but they never did put voice radios in their submarines that could transmit on Allied TBS frequencies. That also explains why in the movie we see, you know, they're they're talking between the ships, 
But then there's a point where Krauss has to decide if he's going to break radio silence, even though they've been talking between the ships the entire time. That's a good point, And thank you for bringing that up. One of the good things about VHF transmission or TBS, as they called it in World War II, it's only line of sight. So if you're uh, 1,800 miles west of Ireland and you've got a radio transmitter transmitting voice that's good for 30 or 40 miles, you can talk on that to your mates, giving instructions or coordinating attacks. And the chances of a German hearing it, aside from the ones that already know where you are, is nil. They just can't do it. The radio that Hanks is discussing using that would give away his position is long-distance shortwave radio, and that would be transmission by Morse to the Admiralty, and the Germans could certainly hear that. And if they gave any sort of long signal, the Germans would be able to eventually catch a bearing on it the way you could on short bearings, although thank goodness they didn't have huff stuff. That makes sense. You see what I mean about how when you pick a book up, the words fall out. C.S. Forster take four pages describing how all that worked in the book and then go back to the action. We had to do that by having, uh, with lighting and sound, and having the best actor in the world, Tom Hanks, frown and then give his next orders. He would help the audience understand what he was dealing with. There was a scene where we see the rescue happens with the, with the Kadena going to to rescue the Despotico that got uh, fired on. And then Greyhound fires on, on the U-boat. They don't hit them, but then they receive word that there's more targets at the front of the convoy. So they break off to engage those new threats. And before leaving, Kraus sends a message to Kadena saying, um, you know, I'm confident you'll be able to outrun the U-boat. But as I was watching that, I got the sense that, okay, there's more targets over here. So it's higher priority than defending this ship over here. Was there this sort of priority level to it? Uh, you know, it came down to the decisions of, if you're going to, if they have the choice between protecting ship A and ship B, protect ship A? Well, that sort of question came up, of course. That was the sort of heart-rending decision that officers had to make. But in that situation, there was no priority being made. Hanks does have to get back and plug the hole that the screening position in the convoy. But once he's forced that submarine to dive, it's not fast anymore. It's slow. And Kadena can crank herself up to 12 knots to catch up. I think we had her say that. And at 12 knots, she'll outrun the submarine. It can't catch them. Again, there's that dynamic going. If, you've, if you can force the submarine to dive, you've, you've basically won part of the battle. So he, he, wa- he wasn't uh, leaving her to her fate, although he might certainly hope that things would work out well for them. That's an interesting topic because in the escort squadron, Hanks has got uh, three destroyers and a corvette. And the Corvette is the smallest of the ships. It's also the slowest. The flower-class Corvette could only do 16 knots under the best of conditions. In similar warships today in our Navy, we say, yeah, 16 knots with the divers sitting on the stern kicking their flippers to give an extra boost. That's not good because if the convoy is doing eight knots and the Corvette lingers back behind to finish off or thoroughly hunt a U-boat while the convoy is marching away, it may take her a day or a day and a half to catch up again. Whereas a destroyer can scoot up to 30, 36 knots and catch up quickly. But when those tribal class and Fletcher class, class destroyers and lightning class destroyers were being designed in the late 1930s, nobody thought that their primary job would be to hunt submarines. They were designed to go very fast in straight lines and accompany battleships into fleet actions. They thought their torpedoes were their main weapon. And they put some depth charges on them because they thought maybe they might be necessary. But they were really not very good for hunting submarines because submarines could outturn them 
at three, four, five knots, which is the normal, or 12 knots, which is the normal speed in a hunt, the destroyer was quite clumsy. They couldn't turn very sharply, and this, uh, the submarine could outmaneuver them. So what I'm getting around to is, although the Corvette is the smallest ship in the escort squadron, it's the only one that's a good submarine hunter. And that figure is largely in the story. It comes up more in the book. And it comes up in the book of the Krause's relations with the captain of that ship, because he would be in command if not for the accident that Kraus was promoted just before he joined his ship. And now the expert submarine hunter is subordinate under a man who's just learning his job. That's going to add some extra tension there. <laughs> You've talked about this a little bit briefly before, but I wanted to ask more about it. There's uh, in, in the movie, it's between 1,600 and, and 2,800 hours. The Greyhound is firing on a U-boat, and all of a sudden, there's a merchant ship deadhead. There's urgent order, ceasefire, hard left rudder, super close call. Were there ever such close calls like that, or is that just to build some action in the movie? Good thing you brought that up, because uh, yes, they did happen, and we took that incident directly from the book, and yes, there are real instances of close calls like that at sea, and actually, escorting warships were sunk several times by the vessels they were trying to protect, accidentally running them down. But in the book, that incident is used to demonstrate Krauss's inexperience as a ship handler. If you watch that part of the film again, you'll see that he's coming and he's trying to cross her bow. Everybody knows who's handled the ship. Like I was at sea a long time myself. You don't cross the bow, you go around the stern. But Krauss was going after that U-boat and he tried to cross the bow and he almost didn't make it. So in the novel, that was a demonstration that Krauss is learning his lessons still. In the movie, it just became an exciting incident. And yeah, we tuned it up a little bit to, to have actually made contact like that. The destroyer would have lost her boats and all her weapons off that side. Uh, and she might have been sunk, actually, because the destroyer's plating is quite thin. They didn't call them tin cans for nothing. But it did really happen. Uh, the famous Queen Mary cut a British cruiser in half that was zigzagging in front of her, hunting a submarine. And she cut her in half. And because she had more than 10,000 soldiers on board, she couldn't stop. So they had to watch the two halves of the ship they'd run over sinking behind them. And hundreds of sailors died because of a young officer's error in a helm command. What a horrible thing. When I was in the service, I had a a number of colleagues who went to Afghanistan. In our service, the uh, specialists are often naval officers. And when I was talking with one of them who came home, he told me, there will be, he said, he knew there'd be bad things and hard decisions. He said, but really what gets you afterwards is the incident where you have a split second to make a decision, and then you spend the rest of your life thinking about what you should have done. And he said, that's what gets you. And uh, that very same officer told me, and I, I'm not, well, I guess I'm boasting about the quality of the team that I worked with. He thought we had got, we were reaching that feeling in the tension on the bridge of that ship where Hanks is making decisions. He doesn't know if he's right. He knows he's making mistakes sometimes, but he's got to keep going. Can I describe a, a moment that I think is my favorite in the film? We were shooting a scene where Hanks is looking at a burning tanker and 40 men are burning to death just a few hundred yards away, and he's watching them burn. And he stopped to pick up some men from the water, and there was only a few. And he stopped to pick up a few, I think it was three, and but 40 men burned to death because he got out of position and let the U-boat come in again. In the novel, they spend two pages, two full pages, describing 
his sense of failure and his terror that everyone's going to know he's a failure because he made them he made a mistake again and he's watching young men die because of it what we did in the film was we were standing on a set actually with a red light blinking in mr hanks's face that would later become the burning tanker we just had screens all around and people standing with clipboards and everything so it was not very much like the north atlantic ocean at night in the midst of battle but hanks looked on the the bearing and part of my job was to tell him which bearing to look on because we were dropping the ships in electronically afterwards looked on the bearing he closed his eyes took a deep breath and then looked to his left and started giving helm orders again and when I, i watched that i saw two pages of description cross his face in a few seconds and sometimes acting doesn't look like acting because it looks so natural but he looked to me like a man who realized he'd made a terrible terrible mistake that maybe when he was dying, he might think about again later as an old man. And I have a story about that too. But he uh, he did it. And he did it in the most artificial environment you can possibly imagine, standing on a set with a bunch of people standing around and a camera in his face. I think that was my favorite moment in the film. That's why he's one of the, the best actors out there, <laughs> to be able to do something like that. You mentioned that you had another story? Yeah. If when you're watching the film, you look at the chart table in the wheelhouse, you'll see a uh, brass circular protractor with a compass scale on it. This belonged to a a friend of mine who's since passed away, who served in the Battle of the Atlantic. And when I'm working with actors uh, on historical films, which is my job, what I often do is try to find a real artifact from the time and I give it to them and tell a story about it. And what I did with uh, Mr. Hanks was I showed him a picture of my late friend Bill and described how he'd been a gunnery officer aboard a Canadian warship that sank a U-boat south of Greenland in August of 1942. And after that hard, hard fight, Bill, who was 20 years old then, realized he'd lived through history, and he took this instrument that he used on the bridge of his destroyer in the battle and put it in his pocket. And when he passed away, he left it to me. And Bill remembered that fight with no pleasure whatsoever, and his comment to me was, as he was dying, he didn't talk about the war much until the last week of his life, he told me he hated the war for having robbed him of the carefree youth he should have had, and then he said, I hate it for the killing I witnessed and participated in, and then he got a hard look on his face with his head on his pillow, and he kind of squinted one eye, and he said to me, but Gordy... Nothing in my life ever matched being officer of the watch and a well-armed Canadian destroyer doing 36 knots off the coast of France, looking for trouble. And then his head went back on the pillow, and that was one of the last things he said to me. And I used to quote Bill when I did talks at Remembrance Day or about the Atlantic Sunday and so on, and I told Mr. Hanks that story too. And I described uh, that the Spanish have a word for what I, what was in Bill's words, and that is duente. My, uh, my accent is bad, but it's duality. Uh, there are terrible moments in war that crush people afterwards when they're doing what they have to do, but there's also excitement. And if I'm ever accused of glorifying war in my films, I tell them Bill's lines that he told me when he's at the end of his life, and then I comment, but the exciting part is not the reason to go, because ultimately it's not exciting. It's just killing. Anyway, I guess I got off on a tangent there, but uh, you'll see this in the film. Hank took this and put it on the chart table, and you'll see it on the chart table in the uh, in the wheelhouse of the, the destroyer. 
I'm definitely going to have to go back and watch that again and, and look for that. That's for sure. In the movie, there it's kind of broken up into different watches. There's the forenoon watch from 0800 to 1200 on Wednesday. There's a dog watch from 1600 to 2000 hours. Oh, no. <laughs> a dog watch is not four hours long. That was a mistake we made. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> a dog watch is two hours long. That's why it's dogged. It's short. <laughs> Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, there's that. And then uh, morning watch on, on Thursday from 0400 to 0800. Uh, first watch from 2000 to 2400 on Thursday. And then forenoon watch again uh, from 0800 to 1200 on Friday. So obviously, it, the, it's it's obvious in the movie that, you know, there's some time in between these different watches. And, and you know, obviously, there's there's going to be stuff that's, that's going on. But what would there... Would it kind of be broken up like that, or would there be anything noteworthy that would happen in between those hours, or was that just picking some times for action in the movie? Well, we certainly picked moments when action was happening, but we hope that we got the feeling across that life carries on on the ship. A ship is a community. Her ship's company or her crew are divided into three watches, uh, roughly a third of the men in each watch. And when one watch is on deck in normal cruising situations, the other two-thirds of the crew are off watch. So you're on duty four hours, off duty eight hours. During those eight, eight hours off, you do laundry, you eat, you do your, whatever uh, uh, cleaning duties you have to do, write letters, and you sleep. So it may sound like a lot, but it really isn't. So the daily rotation of life in the ship would continue regardless of what's going on. And actually, that brings up something. I was asked in an interview when the film first came out about the uh, the Captain Stewart, a man of color who's trying to serve him food all the time. And somebody asked me if I thought that man was being denigrated as being in service. And I, I responded, absolutely not. In fact, that superb actor who uh, also started Mudbound, he and I discussed the situation and he understood clearly that just as surely as the ship's engineers look after the great turbines that drive the ship, or the gunners look after their weapons, his job is to keep the ship's greatest and most important asset, its captain, going. And he tries to help Commander Krause eat. He tries to help him rest. But an indication of his inexperience is that he doesn't. And that's something I noticed when I reread the book before we started working on the film. When I was being trained as an officer, a mark you got against yourself was if you're going through a leadership trial, and they were very good at creating scenarios that uh, simulate warfare stress, if you don't rest and you don't have the confidence in the training you've given your people to look after while you grab three or four hours of sleep, that's not good leadership. And it's a mark of Krauss's inexperience as a captain in command. He never leaves that bridge. And yeah, sometimes that happened with good reason. But in the novel, it's more clear that he's working himself to death. And uh, of course, that's what happened to Walker, the real man. He did die of the stress. But we tried to do what we could to show that every time he's about to try to take a moment, something happens and calls him back. So it's partly his ability to manage with those moments and partly the fact that they, they keep coming at him. Yeah, and you definitely do see that when you know trying to feed him, but also his feet are bloody because he's been standing for so long, things like that. And then, of course, you know, at the very end of the movie, he finally gets some rest. As a mark of uh, Mr. Hanks's brilliance as a writer, there's at the end of the movie, the action's over, and he's writing his last signal on the chart table with that device beside him, and the pencil breaks. 
nothing goes easy for Ernie Kress. <laughs> and when he's passing through the convoy and the uh, the troops and the troop shit are cheering are cheering him, well, he's not on the bridge to take that chair. He's he's on his way to bed, and he misses the moment. He's always just a step off, and nothing is easy for that man. But he learns his lessons, and he just keeps going. Wasn't that a beautiful scene with yeah, when he's saying his prayer at the end? Oh yes, it was beautifully done because you have the light streaming in, and it's yeah, you can you can tell that he's finally getting some rest through the entire thing. Some of the other sailors, I don't remember if it was the same same uh, person or not, but they would come in and be like, "Okay, I'm I'm leaving my shift. Okay, I'm I'm on duty now. I'm off to you know." making that point that Krauss is still there through all these different shifts that other people are leaving and coming back and he's staying there. Yeah, we did that purposely. You see the you see the watches change on the bridge, but he's always there. And that was not by accident. And that scene at the end when he's uh, saying his prayers by his bed, that is a classic Aaron Schneider direction. Aaron was our director and what a great storyteller that man is. There's another scene in the movie I wanted to ask you about that almost seemed like a, a Hollywood exaggerated moment. Um, this is when we have U-boats shooting from two different angles and the uh, Greyhound is, again, quick thinking on, on Krauss's part. He's trying to evade multiple torpedoes at the same time and he manages to do so, but on, on one of them, you actually see the torpedo glancing off the hull. Was that a moment that would have been exaggerated or did that really happen? Not at all. It really happened. Warships were very difficult to torpedo because they didn't travel on straight courses for long periods of time. So they were tough to aim at. And if they saw a torpedo coming, if they're going fast enough, they could dodge them. And turning to face a torpedo that's coming was called combing the torpedo. C-O-M-B-I-N-G, combing the torpedo's track. Basically, you're reducing the length of your side that's presented to its course. Imagine an arrow coming at you and you turn sideways to it. And also presenting the bow, the ship is more able to withstand a hit forward than she is aft because you lose the propellers and the, and the rudder. So I did find an incident from the Battle of the Atlantic where a captain combed two torpedoes and he missed the first one, but he had to wait for it to come from a stern. So he actually turned stern towards it. It had to overtake him and pass him. The torpedo was doing, he figured, about 40 knots, and he was doing about 28. And he said the seconds it took to pass him were terrible because he was watching the other one come. And as soon as it crossed, the first torpedo crossed his bow, this is what we showed in the film, he gives his helm order to turn, and I gave uh, the script uh, other orders to increase the rate of the turn by slowing the inside engine, increasing the speed on the outside engine, rudder hard over. And this captain in the diary that I was reading described standing there holding the bridge and thought he was going to bend the metal on the bridge trying to help the ship turn. And he said also twisting his hips and his shoulders and using all the well-known techniques to reduce the turning circle and watch that torpedo coming across his bow. And it didn't strike the bow, but the stern was still swinging, so it clipped the torpedo broadside. And he said it was like a hammer striking an anvil and actually popped up out of the water with its engine screaming and went away. And he said he thinks he aged about 10 years in that minute. So that really happened. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that. I mean, that's, that's another example of how you have to wait for those few seconds to make that. I think in, in the movie we see Krauss 
I think he he initially uh, I don't remember the order, but he gives an order and then he sees the other one and he's like, "I'll belay that." You're like, "No, we need to turn this other way." <laughs> initially, because he didn't see see both of them. Yeah, he's got a lot of first-one pass, uh, and uh, uh, the warship would have the benefit of a, a hydrophone operator who could listen, and he would hear that singing sound in the water. When describing what a torpedo might sound like, I described to the production that a certain type of German sub- German torpedo that was the type that would leave a wake in the water had basically a three-cylinder performance motorcycle engine in it driven by very volatile fuel and compressed air to provide air for the combustion. So I said, imagine a, uh, a super bike with no muffler, engine screaming at 12,000 RPM. That's the torpedo, just a wild, maniac, powerful, horrible, deadly weapon. Mindless, but they, they missed two of them. Going back to the movie, I, I want to ask about kind of the the other side of the Black Pit, because for each each block of time that we see, it gives, okay, this is how long until air cover, you know, 50 hours, 36 hours, 26 hours, 14 hours, three hours. And when they finally get within range of air cover, it seems like it's not a moment too soon. Greyhound is facing off with a U-boat, and then PBY comes over and drops uh, depth charges on the target and almost immediately takes out the U-boat. And as I was watching it, I got the sense that, okay, there's almost like this finish line. Like they got to hit the finish line in order to get to the end of the, the black pit. And immediately there's going to be air cover and they're going to be saved as soon as, as soon as they cross this. Is that how that would happen? Or is that again, Hollywood's perfect timing. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated and a lot looser. And we had uh, discussions when we were developing the script about how that would be portrayed and we decided to let it be simplified. But in reality, they'd be able to draw a line on the chart. And by the way, those are my hands drawing the red arcs on the chart where you see the limit of air cover is. They know where that line is. That's the distance from the uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force Base in Northern Ireland. They know that they can't see an aircraft sooner. They know the Admiralty in London is expecting them to cross that line at some point, but they don't know exactly where they'll be because the weather's been so bad and they can't transmit a position. And even if they could, they don't know where to within several miles or 20 miles exactly where they are. So they know that there will be a coastal command aircraft looking for them when they cross that line, but they don't know if they're going to find it. It may be another day before the aircraft finds them. Sometimes the aircraft never found them, and they just had to keep going on and fighting through. So that's one side. There's another dynamic involved there that now that they're within aircraft range of Europe, the Germans are looking for them too. So when they first see that aircraft, it could be a Falkwolf Condor, four-engine, long-distance, anti-shipping aircraft looking for them. And we had a version of that scene where you've, the craft, aircraft is first seeing. Hanks yells, is it friendly? And they have to exchange the challenges to know that it's friendly because it could be a Condor. And if it's in a Condor, they're still in trouble. And added to that, Although they're reaching what they call the MOMP, the mid-ocean meeting point, where the escorts exchanged duties and the ones based in England took over, that's not the end of the fighting, even though they've got air cover now. They're actually just getting into the war zone. So the worst may be yet to come. And convoys were bombed as they were tying up in Liverpool. So it's not the end. It's the end for the mid-ocean escort, which is handing over duty. But it's not the end. And it's probably not going to be better. Well, I was going to ask about that because, you know, the way the movie ends, it is, okay, we've reached the end of the, the Black Pit. The diamond comes, that's going to, you know, that's the British destroyer that comes to relieve them. And 
it's kind of like, okay, we're good. Like it's almost, this is the end. Everything's safe now. That's a bit of movie catharsis to let the, let the tension off at the end of the movie. But the, uh, the fact is the convoy is just getting into the war zone. The way escorts worked was that, uh, mid-ocean escort that Hanks's ship is part of probably came out of St. John's, Newfoundland and caught up with the convoy south of Newfoundland where the Atlantic coastal warships escorting it would hand it over and they would carry it across the middle to the mid-ocean meeting point where they meet Diamond and Diamond takes over to bring them into England. But because it's too far to go to go back across, the surviving escorts then go to, to Derry, to London Derry in Northern Ireland, where there was a naval base. They refuel, rearm, requip, and usually with no, no more than one night in port, race back out again to the mid-ocean meeting point to pick up a convoy that's starting back across the Black Pit. Of course, uh, the, that crossing could be just as bad, but the Germans knew those ships were empty, so they tried to catch the full ones. I'm glad you explained that more because <laughs> I got the sense of, Everything's good. We're we're safe. <laughs> we've 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 crossed the worst of it. I think the movie needed that dramatically for the what they call the story arc, but in reality, it's it's just beginning. One of the big challenges that you see in the movie is the depth charges or lack thereof. They start to run out of them. There's a point where I think Krauss says, "Okay, the next pattern is going to be a medium one," and then like eh, we only have six left. <laughs> Can you share a little more background on? how many they would start with, how many was in a medium and full pattern that, that some of the terminology we see in the movie? That's an interesting topic and an important one because there's uh, several levels. One is technical and one is what's going on in Commander Krauss's mind as he's becoming exhausted. On the technical side, a Fletcher-class destroyer at midpoint in the war would have about 30 depth charges. That meant she could drop a full pattern three times, 10 charges three times. And that's not a lot, but the reason is they nobody thought when she was designed that submarine hunting would be her primary job. Her job was to escort and attack battleships. In the story, we uh, there's mention of bringing an overload of charges out of the after Siemens mess. They really did that. So we had another 24 charges there. But Chris has forgotten that he already called for those to be brought out. He's, he's lost track of how low his ammunition is, and that causes a, a hard moment among his younger and freshly rested crewmen when they realize he's forgetting things. And he realizes himself when he says that line about harmless as a dove, he's caught himself that he's uh, he's made a mistake again. And that was a small mistake. And the support he has from his officers corrects it. But he's realizing he's running out of, out of ammunition. The Corvette, for example, although she's uh, probably a third the size of a destroyer, uh, carried 120 depth charges. Her reason for being was none other than hunting submarines. So she had plenty. And yes, if the weather was sufficiently calm, they could have exchanged some and sent them over. Later in the war, they actually had store ships that that could replenish escort vessels with fuel and and weapons, but not at that point in the war. So what we're seeing there is two things. One is yet another indication that the powerful tool in the destroyer that Hanks has is not really designed for the job he's using it for. And the other thing is he's starting to forget things because he's he's tired. Mr. Hanks said in an interview, and I was delighted to see this because it gave an indication of his deep understanding of the story. He said in one of his own interviews, he wanted to do another film where he played a commander in, war, in World War II. He's exactly the same age I am. Our birthdays are only a few weeks apart. I'm too old to go to sea as a commanding officer. So is he. Then somebody gave him a copy of The Good Shepherd, and Tom 
picked up the book and he read it. The captain has white hair. It's about a man who's too old to be at sea. And he was perfect for the role. And what was what would be the age difference of Walker then versus what was what is too old, I guess, would be? <laughs> well, most sea officers are in their 20s and 30s. And Hanks and I are just over 60. And uh, Walker was in his late 50s when he started. That's pretty old to be awake for three days straight. It is, although you made a good point that that's an indication of Krause's lack of experience there, where he forces himself to stay awake that long. And you start to see some of those effects, like with the depth charges, <laughs> losing count, like we just talked about. After the funeral scene, you'll notice he wears his number one uniform for the rest of the movie. He hasn't taken a moment to change clothes. And we try to give the audience little hints like that about how he's absolutely stretched physically and mentally in every direction, just trying to keep up and to cope with this terrible job, this terrible responsibility he has. And I guess the good news is that he's learning his lessons. What's something that, from a historical perspective, didn't make its way into the movie that you wish you had been able to include? There was one thing that I had hoped it had got in, uh, stayed in, but uh, in the editing process, uh, it didn't quite fit. At the moment when the aircraft is leaving the convoy, I had a discussion with uh, with Aaron, our director, and we decided that we wanted to, for just a moment, let the audience see that these aren't just two mechanical military assets that are saying goodbye to each other. There's a frightened 18-year-old radioman in the aircraft who is saying goodbye because he just can't stay any longer and he knows the loss that his help will be. And he's got to fly 12 hours back to Newfoundland and he may not make it. And the 18-year-old signaler in the ship is just starting off across the black pit, and he may not make it. So we wrote a couple of lines where they broke protocol, and these two young men are just flashing the signal to each other, as they did and as they still do today. And I had the uh, signaler in the aircraft saying, looks bloody cold down there, mate. Good luck. And the guy in the ship signals back saying, looks lonely up there. Hope you make it home. And it would have been uh, an extra little touch of humanity if that could have survived in the film. Because it, in those days, you know, flying at 105 knots, which is what the uh, Catalina aircraft did going back to Gander or St. John's, Newfoundland, 12 more hours droning over the sea, they may not make it. They stayed every minute they could to protect the convoy, and they just can't stay anymore. We have to go. That would have to be so difficult to, yeah, you stay every minute that you can. You're going to have limited amounts of fuel obviously that's you know you're going to end up running running out there so you, you try to use as much as you can here knowing that you're going to have to use up 12 12 hours worth if not more depending on weather depending on if you run into complications challenges along the way we had a neighbor who died a few years ago who served in coastal command his house is within sight of me out the window jim told me of flying in long distances and then seeing the fuel reserves going and the dis he was the navigator and the distance back to land, let alone to the airfield they needed to find again, and looking at the wind and realizing that if that wind comes up five knots, they're not going to make it, and saying to the pilot, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go, and the pilot looking down at the convoy saying, they say they saw something, we have to stay, and uh, sometimes they stayed, and sometimes they didn't make it back. Actually, that was shown in the film Dunkirk. Remember the uh, that scene when the Spitfire pilot is looking at his calculations, and he's realizing if he goes now, he might make it back to England, but that bomber is going for the minesweeper, and he decides to sacrifice himself to make it. That really happened. Wow. 
Wow. Those sort of decisions and things like that, you don't really, it, it's easy to, to not think about that because those are the, not the, the flashy ones, you know, that, that are going to be real obvious on, on screen, like the decisions of, okay, or like what are the decisions to make to dodge these two torpedoes, right? That's an obvious sort of thing that you can see on screen, but those other little decisions that everybody has to make it. Yeah, I think in movies, in good movies, when you again, when you take the book and all the words, you take the book and all the words fall out when you turn it into a screenplay. There are things in it that we as filmmakers put into them, and if you see it over and over again, you'll start seeing more and more. That's certainly true about Master and Commander. There's there's stuff in there that uh, when I rewatch it sometimes with friends, they go, "Oh yeah, I remember that," and then I say, "Here's why we did that," but you wouldn't notice it normally. But it, uh, altogether, these things create a patina as I think of it, a patina of realism. And you couldn't put your finger on what most of them are, but the lack of them is obvious sometimes. I remember watching another movie, uh, I won't name it because I know good people work hard on these things. My wife, who's not a military historian, leaned over to me in the theater and she said, she whispered to me, if the Germans were that stupid, how did it take six years to defeat them? <laughs> they, they, they weren't stupid. They fought hard. They wanted to go home. And I guess that leads to another thing. When we were having discussions about uh, uh, choreographing the battle scenes, which was one of my jobs working for Aaron under his direction, uh, saying, well, how deep would the submarine be at this point when it's trying to slip under them? I said, oh, four or 500 feet. Four or 500 feet? Why so deep? And I said, well, because they want to live. They want to go home. And the, the more distance they put between themselves vertically and horizontally from that warship that can sink them, the more likely they are to survive. And ultimately, they want to go home. There's a, a military expression I used to hear sometimes when I was in the service myself. People would say, is this the hill you want to die on? And what they mean, basically, is in the military, I never faced it myself, but you're faced with a decision saying, is this the one where I stay in the aircraft until I run out of fuel and crash doing my job? Is this the day? Is this worth it, this day? And uh, that happened a lot in the Atlantic. I think trying to get that level of serious tension into the film is a way of respecting the people whose ordeals we're, we're portraying. If we make it look easy or make the enemy do stupid things that make it easy to get them, well, yeah, they made mistakes sometimes as we did, but it's not respectful, I think. And we, we tried to be very respectful in this one. Well, I, I think you did a great job, and I really appreciate you coming on to chat about Greyhound. And I, I know you mentioned Master and Commander. I know you've offered <laughs> consulting services on a lot of other movies. I'm sure we'll be chatting again in the future. But for someone listening to this who isn't familiar with your company's services, can you give them an overview of what you do and share your site where they want to learn more? My website is gordonlacco.com. Gordon, like G-O-R-D-O-N, Lacco, L-A-C-O. My filmography is there. What I and we and the people I work with do for films is help directors tell stories. I see my job is uh, historically is showing where the centerline tracks are with regards to common understanding of what really happened and how things worked. So when the productions have to make decisions veering left and right of the center line, they know when they're going off course and by how much. And every film has to do it to tell the story. I tell students sometimes, it's possible to be so right you're wrong. If you get something so perfectly authentic that the audience doesn't understand it, well, then you've lost them. And that's not good either if you're trying to tell a story about brave people. My company also, so we do that. We also uh, advise on props and locations, and I guess that's more of a, more production work. 
And uh, uh, just to keep the drum rolling at a steady beat for the sake of the family, I operate a business that imports and supplies uh, rigging and fittings to historic ships, both operating ones and ones in museums. You'll see all that. The show I've uh, just completed my work on right now is a is for Netflix. It's a uh, an animated fantasy called Jacob and the Sea Beast. And I was laughing with friends the other day. If I need to come up with something, if I've given an assignment, I can just make something up. And as long as it's in the spirit of the time and the place that the story is set in, that's fair game. And the uh, the freedom is sometimes exhilarating. But I do like hard history very well. But that's what I'm working on now. I'll make sure to add a link to your site in the show notes for this episode as well. Thanks. Thanks again so much for your time. Bye-bye. Be well. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Gordon Lacko once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2020's Greyhound. Gordon has worked as a consultant or a marine outfitter for a ton of movies and TV shows like American Gods, Moby Dick, K-19, The Widowmaker, Master and Commander, and so many more. If you want to learn even more about Gordon's work, go check out his website over at gordonlacko.com. You can find that link in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Tom Hanks' character, Ernie Krause, was based on someone named Captain Walker in the Royal Navy. Number two, the close call we saw with Greyhound narrowly missing two torpedoes at the same time really happened. Number three, there are seven German subs in a wolf pack. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Tom Hanks' character, Commander Ernie Krauss, was based on someone named Captain Walker in the Royal Navy. That is true. As Gordon explained, Captain Walker served in World War I as a junior officer, so by the time World War II rolled around, he was too old. But despite that, he still ended up becoming history's greatest submarine hunter as he developed tactics during the war that are still used today. That brings us to number two. The close call we saw with Greyhound narrowly missing two torpedoes at the same time really happened. That is also true, although it is worth pointing out that it didn't really happen with Greyhound since that's a fictional ship, but Gordon did find an instance during the Battle of the Atlantic where that sort of thing actually happened, having to dodge two torpedoes, and that served as inspiration for the way we see things going down and the way they happen in the movie. That means number one is the lie. There are seven German subs in a wolf pack. Although there are seven U-boats during the peak of the action in the movie, Gordon pointed out that a wolf pack is really just a colloquialism to refer to any subs that happen to be in the area when they converge on a convoy. So, as he said, there were sometimes as many as 14, and other times it might just be a few of them. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I'd like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that is surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. 
With that said, today's episode took a total of 42 hours to create and cost $25.11 in out-of-pocket expenses. Now, as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one single episode. In other words, that 42 hours does not include my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, the time for social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things outside actually creating the episode that are required to make a podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $25.11 is just for things specifically for this one episode. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making a single episode. For example, the cost of the microphone I'm talking into right now, the cables hooked up to the microphone, the audio interface, the computer, the software, the podcast, website, and hosting costs that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars each and every month, and on and on. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money that goes beyond the things that are associated with this one episode, but they're all things that are required because if I didn't pay for those things or do those things, there would not be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to over 60 exclusive episodes on the producer's feed. Over there, we look at how completely fictional movies deal with history and real life in order to make them seem a little bit more believable. For example, we've covered the history in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, which actually Gordon's company supplied rigging and nautical gear for Pirates 2 and 3. But there's more. Jurassic Park, the entire Back to the Future franchise, the entire Mummy franchise. Next week, we'll be looking at the 2019 version of The Lion King and so many more. You can find out how to get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>